The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Man, so I'm so grateful for the team that we have here, uh, for the worship team that we have to lead us. One of the things I love about our worship team is that this is not a, a gig to them. This is not just something they show up uh, to do for a few hours on Sunday. They are all, first and foremost, before they're musicians and worship leaders, they are members here, and they're a part of our body. They're committed first to our family and to King Jesus before they're committed to uh, this gift or this, this ability. And so so grateful for them, so grateful for all of our teams that make Sundays happen, production, hospitality host team, setup team, city kids. Um, Man, thank you all so much to those of you who serve. Uh, real quick, before we dive in, if you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, coming up in a few weeks is our next membership class. So if you've been coming around for a while and you are considering taking your kind of next step into the life of our church, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the New Testament and King Jesus expects you to be a part of a local church body. And so if you are considering whether that's here for you, then the next chance you have and the last chance you have for 2023 is September 17th. And so we do this three times a year spring, summer, fall. Coming up, it's Sunday afternoon. We run from about two to five, and it's just a space for you to get all of your questions answered about who we are and what we believe and how we live as a church family. So sign up for that. We'd love to see you there. Grab a Bible. Go to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Today is an exciting day. It's Baptism Sunday for us as a church, and so we're excited to get to talk about Jesus and talk about the scriptures to worship and then to go celebrate that. Psalm 130. If you need a Bible, there should be some in the rows. We'll get there in just a minute. Uh, as you're turning there, let's stand and do what we've been doing the last 11 weeks, which is read the Apostles' Creed together. If you're new, not a Christian, we invite you to stand and watch us as we confess what we believe as the church of Jesus Christ. Read this with me, church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before you're seated, let's pray together. Lord, we worship you and honor you as king. We come before you desperate for you to speak to us as your people, desperate for you to move in power, because we believe, as we've seen from the text, that your Holy Spirit is here with us now, present moving, working. And so Lord, I pray that you would do what we are unable to do in our flesh, which is take the word of God, put it into our hearts so that we are changed. So we trust you to do what only you can do. We open ourselves to you, to your word. We love you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Grab a seat. One of the things that I have loved about getting to study the creed together is how it's been rooting us in church history. It's been rooting us in these kind of core doctrines of our faith that Christians have held for upwards of 2,000 years. And one of the things I've loved personally as I've been studying each line and the scriptures behind each line is to see how these lines came to be. 
As we said week one, these lines don't kind of come out of nowhere. This committee just didn't sit down and say, what should we say? Each line comes out of the scriptures, but also out of a moment in time in history. And that is true of our line today, the forgiveness of sins. And I think the history of this line in particular is really helpful for us as we get into the text. So this line, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, like the other line descended to hell from a few weeks ago, was a late addition to the creed. So where the rest of the creed can be found in as early as 100 or 200 AD, this line doesn't show up until around 400 AD. And that's not because Christians up until that point didn't believe in the forgiveness of sins, but simply because something happened in a moment of time where they felt the need to defend this doctrine via a confession. Well, then what happened? Well, let's talk about the history. You see, in 303 AD, under the Roman emperor Diocletian, for a whole variety of reasons, a massive widespread persecution broke out in the Roman Empire against Christians. Their homes were taken, their Bibles were burned, their places of worship were destroyed, and it became the declaration of the emperor that if you were found to be a Christian, you had one of two options, either sacrifice to the Roman gods or die. And in fact, Roman officials and Roman soldiers would carry around these kind of makeshift uh, portable shrines to a different Roman god. And they would show up to the house of someone they thought was a Christian, and they would say, we've brought the shrine to you, sacrifice or die. And you can read the stories throughout church history of martyrs who were faithful to the end, who loved Jesus, did not give up their faith, and were killed because of it. But you can also read stories of the opposite. While there were some Christians who were faithful to Jesus, even to death, there were a whole host of Christians who capitulated and gave in. And those who gave in came to be known in the early church as, quote, the traitors, About 10 years after this persecution starts, Diocletian finally steps down as emperor, and he's replaced by a guy named Galerius. And Galerius ends the persecution in Rome with what is known as the Edict of Milan. And now, the church is under a different sort of crisis. They're now faced with a question, what are we going to do with all of these people who turned their backs on Jesus? All of these people who over the last 10 years abandoned us, abandoned Christ, walked away from the faith, said, no thanks, I'm going to follow these false Roman gods to save my own skin. What do we do with them? Do they have to be baptized all over again? How are they going to enter back into the church? What about the clergy who gave in on their faith? Do all the people they baptized now also have to be rebaptized? What does all of this mean? The church had to wrestle with these questions As Ben Myers puts it, the question became for these 4th century Christians, is the Christian community a church of the pure, as some called it, or can struggling, weak, and uncertain souls also find a place within that community? See, these early Christians needed to figure out what do we believe and what does the Bible say about this whole forgiveness thing? How broad and how wide and how deep and how lasting is the mercy and grace of God for sin and sinners? And here we are, 1,700 years or so later, and we would benefit from asking the same question. What do we believe, and what does the Bible say about this whole forgiveness thing? How broad and wide and ongoing and lasting is the mercy and grace of God for sin and sinners? And the conclusion they arrived at, that I'm hoping we're going to arrive at today from the scriptures, is this I believe in the forgiveness of sins. After all of this rebellion, all of these people turning their back on Jesus, the church wrestling, what do we do with them? The thing they settled on that Christians have affirmed for 1,700 plus years is that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Amen? 
And then this line gets put into the creed as a reminder for them and a reminder for us. And so that's where we're headed. We're going to talk about forgiveness. But before we talk about forgiveness, we first have to talk about the end of the line, which is sin. We've said this every week, even today in our corporate confession during this series, that to understand how good the forgiveness of God is, we first have to understand what? The evil of our sin. So we'll start there because that's where the psalm starts. Psalm 130, hopefully you're there. We'll start in verse 1. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, Psalm 130 isn't a psalm with a whole lot of context. We're not exactly sure who is writing it or why they're writing it or what's going on in their lives. We only know what the psalm tells us, which is they're in a desperate need for God. So the psalm opens, out of the depths I cry to you. They're lamenting and calling out for the mercy of God. And the text tells us why in verse 3. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The word iniquities is one of a few ways the scriptures describe this idea of sin. And on a base level, the word iniquity simply means an act of guilt. It's a violation of an established standard. And sin, among many things, is just that. You see, God is the creator and designer and author of all life, has told us, his creation, how to live. And when we do not live in line with that, either through doing, loving, believing, or thinking what we shouldn't, or not doing, loving, believing, or thinking what we should, that is iniquity. It's sin. It's a failure to live up to the standard of God. And the psalmist says, this is a big deal. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, meaning if you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, I could not stand, my uncle could not stand, my brother could not stand, my sister could not stand, no one could stand if the Lord kept a record of sin. So the psalmist is calling out for the mercy of God because he knows the alternative to that mercy is fair and righteous and true judgment. Everything we talked about a few weeks ago. He's crying out, Lord, if you knew, if you kept a record of sin, no one could stand. Now it's worth pausing here to talk for a minute about how different the psalmist's view of sin is than ours tends to be today as modern Americans. Unlike the psalmist who is honest about the gravity of his sin, we so often want to deny both our sin and our sinfulness. And I think it'd be fair and helpful and pastoral to kind of point out a few of the ways I see in myself and I see in the world around us and in the church of how we deny our sins. So let's just talk about this for a few minutes. What are the ways that we don't say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities who could stand, but rather, eh, sin's not that big of a deal. How do we deny our sin today? We'll go through a smattering, if you will. Number one, self-righteousness. The first way we deny our sin is self-righteousness. We deny our sin by inflating our view of ourselves. We are convinced of our own rightness. That's what it means to be self-righteous. I'm self-declaring myself as right. So instead of saying with the psalmist, if the Lord keeps a record of our sin, who can stand? We rather say, if the Lord keeps a record of our sin, I think I'd be doing all right at least given my circumstances, or especially in compared to that other group of people. Self-righteousness denies our sin by attempting to justify ourselves before God and others. And it sounds like, well, I'm not really a bad person. I just like occasionally do the wrong thing. Or it sounds like, well, I have some faults, but I don't commit any of like the big ones. Self-righteousness is the thing that rises up within us when we're in our community group time and we're confessing, but we have to put like seven justifications on it. It was only one time. 
I've already apologized. I've already processed it with a friend or counselor. And maybe those things are all true. Maybe it was just one time. Maybe we have already apologized for it. Maybe we have already processed through it. And yet it's evidence that there's self-righteous denial of sin trying to nullify the gravity of sin and sweep it under the rug. It's a way that we deny our sin. The second way we deny our sin is through legalism. Legalism. Legalism is the Bible's terminology for doing Christian things in an effort to earn God's love. The most basic form, legalism, is doing Christian things, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, attending group, serving, sharing the, your, the, sharing the gospel, etc., etc., in an effort to earn God's love. So rather than the picture the scriptures paint, which means God's love driving us to obedience and discipline, instead, legalism says obedience and discipline causes God to love us. You see the difference there? So we try to earn our forgiveness by making promises to God. Legalism looks like, God, I promise I'm never going to do this again if you forgive me. Legalism looks like, God, I'm sorry I did this, but did you see X, Y, and Z that I did yesterday? I know that I keep going after that. I know I keep doing this, but like, have you seen my church attendance record? It is off the charts. Have you seen how much I've been reading the Bible? Have you seen how much I've been serving my spouse? Don't you see I am worthy of forgiveness? That's legalism. It's not Christian, it's not the Bible, and it's actually a way we deny our sin. Because in saying, I can earn God's forgiveness, we are subsequently denying that, one, we are as rotten at our core as the Bible says we are. More on that in a second. But two, that our sin is not so grave that we aren't able to pay for it ourselves. Because in saying, I can earn God's forgiveness, is saying, this is not such a big deal that I can't pay for it and atone for it by my deeds. Now, those are the first two ways. Self-righteousness, we try to justify ourselves. Legalism, we try to earn God's forgiveness. But those are the more Christian ways. I want to talk a little bit more about what I would argue are the ways that our kind of cultural moment tends to deny sin. We doing all right? Sweet. Number three, victim mentality. Victim mentality. Third way we deny our sin, minimize our sin, is through a victim mentality. I'm not responsible for the things I do especially those that are against the design of God, because, well, let me tell you about my childhood. That's victimhood. It's a victim mentality. I am not responsible for anything because I am solely and only the byproduct of what has happened to me. I am powerless over sin. I can no longer choose to say no to temptation because of what I've experienced. And so any behavior, any outward, anything wrong that I think, say, or do is not an outworking of the depravity of my heart, but simply a response to the wrong that has first been done to me. And this victim mentality, victimhood, is everywhere in our culture right now. One sociologist who I was reading this past week called it the race to the bottom. He said, in our culture right now, whereas throughout history, everybody tried to get on top, now we've understood the way to the top is actually the way down. And not in the upside down kingdom of God, but in the I'm a greater victim than you, therefore I win. It's a victim mentality that has pervaded our culture, where if my life is or was harder than you, I'm allowed to justify my actions towards you. That's victim mentality. It's a way we deny our sin. It's a way we try to nullify and justify our culpability and responsibility before God and before others for what we have chosen to do. It's a way we try to get ourselves out of the weight of obedience to God that he's called us to as followers of Jesus. And I see this play out all of the time. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? I don't have to be obedient to God and interweave my life with other Christians in the local church because I've been hurt by church before. My pain justifies my disobedience. 
I don't have to follow a historic Christian sexual ethic where the Bible reserves sex as a gift between one man and one woman in the context of marriage because purity culture was kind of messed up and said some unhelpful things. My story justifies my disobedience. We aid one another in this too, right? So someone will share about how they are just struggling with losing their temper at their kid, and in a sincere effort to be helpful, will say something like, hey, being a parent is really hard. Just give yourself some grace, which is true. Being a parent is very hard. But what we're saying in that is that your circumstances therefore justified your disobedience. Hey, it's okay you did this. You're having a tough day. Hey, it's okay you did this. You're tired. Hey, it's okay you did this. You're overwhelmed. Hey, it's okay you did this. You've gone through a lot. And I'm not saying that you're not tired. And I'm not saying that you're not overwhelmed. And I'm not saying you haven't gone through a lot. I'm not saying any of this to nullify your suffering, sorrow, or story. I'm just saying that the scriptures don't exempt you from obedience because of your suffering or story. So this is the way we try to deny our sin. We try to push against what the Bible calls us to. The fourth way, this one's a little quicker, it's personality quirks. With this one quick, this is just a personal one I had to talk about. Uh, big fan of personality tests. Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, Enneagram when used correctly, love them. But one of the ways it can go wrong is when personality traits we learn about ourselves become a means by which we justify and therefore deny sin and sinfulness. So therefore, I can't be expected to obey Christ and share the gospel because I'm an introvert. Or, well, I know I should work on my anger, but I'm Enneagram 8 and I just like being in charge. Or, I don't always mean to pick on people and tear them down with my words, but I'm hilarious and very quick-witted. And this is the way we deny sin. We put it all onto our personality. This is part of, not the sole reason why, I'm a big fan of them. This is part of why we love, 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 love personality tests so much in our culture. Because it's a means not of self-awareness and therefore change by the goodness of the gospel. It's a means by which we justify the actions we already want to do. Oh, I'm not going to sacrifice to go hang out with those people I don't like on a Saturday because I'm an introvert, right? We just use this to justify actions that we already wanted to take. Now we just have a, a test that somebody created that tells us it's okay. Number five, therapeutic values. Fifth way we deny our sin is through therapeutic values. Now, before you email me, I'm not against therapy, not just this week. A conversation with somebody in our church and helped them find a good counselor. I'm not against counseling. I'm not against therapy. I am, however, adamantly outspoken against bad therapy. And bad therapy, among many ways, you, one of the ways you know it's bad is that it stays in the level of emotions. Let me be really clear about my language here. Bad therapy only works at the level of your emotions and your emotional responses, and it never gets down to the root of why and what's going on internally that's driving that. So here's how this plays out when it comes to our sin. Bad therapy wants to go after the feelings of guilt without ever asking if the guilt should be there in the first place. And so all of the discussions between a therapist and a client are around systems and solutions for you not to be so hard on yourself and feel guilty without ever considering maybe there's something you should actually feel guilty for. See what I mean? But focusing solely on the feelings of guilt and not the actual guilt itself is another way we deny sin. It's another way we minimize our sinfulness. I remember talking to a friend of mine a few years ago, this is back when we lived in Colombia, and he had just started recently seeing a counselor. And so I was just asking him as a good friend, like, how's it going? How's it working for you? And he said, it's good. And he said this, he said, they're helping me learn how to forgive myself when I lash out at my wife. And the first response, I'm like, that's, that's awesome. That's great. Follow-up question. Are they also helping you ask for and receive forgiveness from God and from your spouse? Or are you just forgiving yourself? 
You're just dealing with the feeling of guilt and not actually receiving absolution for the real, tangible guilt. And this pervades its way down to where when we seek help for one another in our walk with Christ, we almost focus exclusively on how the person is feeling without ever considering maybe it's valid that they feel that way. And so notice, we're in group time, right? And somebody confesses real, heavy, weighty, evil sin. We spend most of our time trying to alleviate their conscience, trying to help them fight against the feelings of guilt, rather than asking, maybe the feelings of guilt are there because there's real guilt, and what they need is not to have their feelings of guilt appeased, but rather their actual guilt atoned for, which is the better news. And so we try to play the role of partner instead of pointing them and pushing them back to the one who can actually pardon their sin. Now, let's pause there and take a breath. I'm not saying all of this to try to tear us down or to beat us up. I'm not saying all of this to make it feel like you are exclusively bad and I'm exempt from any single one of these because I see all of these in my life. I'm after our joy in Christ. And the reason why I want us to see the five ways that I would argue we deny sin is this. If we deny sin, we deny forgiveness. And if we deny forgiveness, we deny the forgiver. And I don't want us to deny the forgiver. I don't want us, in the words of 1 John 1, to say we have no sin and thus make him out to be a liar. Because if we deny sin, we deny forgiveness. And if we deny forgiveness, we deny the forgiver, much to our own pain and struggle and detriment. Because here's why. If you are self-righteous, if that's the way you deny sin, what need do you have for a savior? You don't need a savior. You're already judge and jury. But if you're judge and jury, do you not carry the enormous crushing weight of being the one that has to declare over yourself righteous and good and okay? That's a weight you cannot handle. If you're legalistic, you don't need Jesus the Savior. You need Jesus the Helper. But if I know anything about my own legalistic heart, that list of things I have to do to earn God's love never gets shorter. It always gets longer. If you're solely a victim of your past and sin is just a thing out there that harms you and not also something in here that harms you from the inside out, then you will miss the true offer of the healing power of Jesus the Great Physician who said, I'm not come for the, for the healthy but for the sick. If you don't have sin, just personality quirks, then you have no need for redemption, no need for forgiveness. You just need Jesus' help to become more fully you. But if the stats about our current culture and depression and anxiety and loneliness are true, then the great Project You experiment of the modern West is crumbling all around us. And if you need, just need Jesus rescuing you from your feelings of guilt and not your actual guiltiness, then you don't need Jesus the sacrificial lamb. You need Jesus the empathetic therapist but the bad feelings of guilt never go away, do they? We need something deeper. If you deny sin, you deny forgiveness. If you deny forgiveness, you deny the forgiver. In the words of theologian Thomas Watson, who said it a long time ago and much better, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's the invitation of Psalm 31. And I don't know about you, but I want more of the sweetness of Christ in my life. Right? Like we've talked about this all of the time. It makes its way into almost every sermon. Our trajectory and goal as a church is not for tomorrow. It's for two decades from now, three decades from now, four decades from now. You would be more in love with Jesus in 40 years than you are today. And part of how we grow in our love and affection for Christ is growing in our hatred and the bitterness of sin to our taste. Part of how we do it is in the words of J.I. Packer, by doing violence to our own perverted instincts of self-righteousness. We do that through the word of God. And so look, look, let me just show you real quick what the Bible actually says about sin. You can write these down and go back and read them later. We open up the word of God, and here's what we see. We see Luke 5, which tells us that sin is like being sick, and it makes us unwell. It hurts us from the inside out, and we need a great physician. 
We see Isaiah 64, which tells us that sin is a pollution. It corrupts all of us and makes us unclean, and we need to be washed and cleansed and made new. We read Isaiah 1, which tells us like, that sin is like a heavy burden, and we need a new rabbi who shows us and invites us to his light and restful ways. We read Romans 6, which tells us that sin is like a cruel slave master. We need a father to come and rescue us and call us not slaves, but children. We read Colossians 2, which tells us that sin puts us under a debt, unable to res- we can, that we can never pay, and we need someone to come and pay our ransom and purchase our redemption. We read Ephesians 2, which tells us that sin makes us dead, unable to respond to the mercy of God, and we need someone to die and rise so that we too can wake up from the dead. And we see this, and we see this, and we see this, and we realize, of course I can never be good enough. Sin is this pervasive, it's this broken, it's this much a reality of my soul, it is this ingrained within me. How foolish would it be to think that I can or should even attempt to work my way out of it, justify my way out of it, console my own soul on the way out of it? Need a savior. We just sing about it, right? I could not love him so blind and unfeeling. That means callous, hard-hearted. I have no merit to woo or delight God. I have no wisdom or powers to employ, meaning I need what only Jesus can give. I need a savior. I need his mercy, his kindness, his gift to me. I need the creed to be true. Like I need all of the creed to be true, but I particularly need this line to be true. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because if this line is not true, how do I enter into a relationship with the triune God that we just talked about for nine weeks? Who's holy and perfect, and majestic, and above. I don't. I need the forgiveness of sins. This is Albert Moeller. I think he puts it so beautifully. This is what he says. He says, this is the great paradox of the Christian life. The world longs for us to run away from our guilt. Guilt is seen as an enemy that must be killed. Self-help books fill the shelves of bookstores as people ruthlessly try to squash the inner feeling of guilt. For the Christian, however, guilt is a gift. That feeling of unquenchable, unyielding guilt leads us to the only hope we have. Sinners must embrace the infinite guilt they live in if they are to find the infinite grace of God. I mean, just sit on that for a second. Sinners must embrace the infinite guilt they live in if they are to find the infinite grace of God. As we embrace our guilt, then and only then can we come to that crimson fount of hope, the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Sinners must embrace the infinite guilt because when they embrace it, they find the infinite grace of God. And that's what the psalmist takes us to. Look back at verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Just think about that for a minute. If the Lord would count our sin, we are all in trouble. But with you, there is forgiveness. Not with my record, not with my good deeds, not with my self-justifications. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning for the morning. For those of you who have ever worked night shift, you know what it's like at 4 a.m. to wait for that sun to rise. The psalmist says, more than that, I'm waiting for the mercy of God. Which if you've never worked night shift, it's bad. 
My soul waits for the Lord. I don't run around trying to deny my sin, trying to save myself, trying to forgive myself. I just, I wait for the Lord. Verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And if you like to write in your Bible, you got to get this line right here. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Love that. Not a little bit of redemption. Not a halfway redemption. Not a potentially, but what if I screw up too bad redemption. Not a, but surely this was the time where I, I went too far. Plentiful redemption. I mean, I just think about the sins of the traitors in the fourth century, right? Like, just, just put yourself in that shoe. It's easy now in 2023 to be like, of course we let them back in. The gospel's true. Like, welcome them back. But just ima- put yourself in the shoes of the fourth century Christians. For a decade, for 10 years, you risk your life to worship Jesus. And these are your family. These are your friends. These are your, your co-laborers in the gospel who are supposed to stand strong with you in faithfulness. And you together just watched your church family die. Like you, you saw it happen. And you're supposed to walk through this arm in arm together. And now they have turned their back on you. They have turned their back on Christ. They've sacrificed to the Roman gods. They've capitulated their faith. They've given it in to save their own neck. I'll be honest of course I don't let them back in. Like, there's no human part of me that's like, yo, yeah, come on. Oh, water under the bridge. I know, you guys are more holy than I am, totally fine. <laughs> you just turned your back on us and your Savior when we needed you the most. There's no way we welcome you back unless you believe in the forgiveness of sins. Unless we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because here's what this does, not just to you as an individual, but to you as a community. It changes the culture. Like when we, we say, as a church, we want a rich gospel culture, a Jesus-y culture. What we mean by that is a church full of really messed up people, desperately in need of the grace of God, and then willing to desperately offer it to one another. We don't mean Jesus-y people as perfect. We don't mean Jesus-y people as got it all put together. We mean Jesus-y people as really messed up and really broken. And if that's you, welcome September 17th. Be a member. Because this is true. And we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so we don't have to deny our sin. We don't have to settle for false saviors because Christ who knew no sin became sin for us. And he went to the cross and he took our place and he died our death and he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Not just, I mean, shocker of all shockers that we get forgiveness out of that, better than forgiveness. Not just neutrality, welcome, sonship, inheritance in the kingdom of God forever. And so what does the scriptures require of us to receive this forgiveness? It requires of us to have the same posture as the psalmist in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. That's what it means to repent and believe. You're like, what is it? How do I enter into the Christian life? What does it mean to put my faith in Jesus? It means for Psalm 131 to be true about your heart. Out of the depths of my sin and my depravity and my shame and my guilt and my sorrow and my suffering, out of the depths of my rebellion, out of the depths of all of the ways I've tried to be God apart from God, I cry out to God for mercy. I want to leave us with um, 
a quote from the famous reformer Martin Luther. So I've talked about how I've been really enjoying church history and, and learning about church history during this series in particular. And one of the stories I keep coming back to uh, is by Martin Luther. If you're not familiar, Martin Luther is like one of the leaders in the Protestant Reformation, one of the leaders uh, about a half century ago who put the gospel back into the forefront of the church, the grace of God back as the center point of the church. But before he was a leader in that, he was a monk. And as a monk, he suffered greatly from guilt. He could not find a way to, to soothe his conscience and to justify himself. And this drove him as a monk. He would wake up at 3 a.m. and spend hours in prayer, even beyond what the monastic rule he was supposed to follow required. He would push himself to the point of fasting, even to the point of emaciation. He would so starve himself that he would often have to see doctors because he would make himself so physically ill. So at one point, his sorrow and his desire to appease his conscience grew so large that he even fastened a whip himself that he would use as penance for the ways that he rebelled against God. And yet in all of that, he could not solve his guilt. And as the story goes, one day in his time of study that the monks were given each morning, he opened the book of Romans and God opened his heart to the good news of the gospel, the incredible offer of forgiveness found only in the person and work of Jesus. Luther confessed his sins to the Lord. He repented. He put his faith in Christ. He believed the gospel. He received what he had longed for for so many years, cleansing and forgiveness, a declaration that he is righteous apart from his own deeds, solely based on the work of Christ. And a few years later, he's well now into uh, leading this movement to take the gospel he has found back into the church. And he receives a letter from his friend Melanchthon. And he's writing, Melanthon's writing to him, and he's asking, how do I get the people in my church to care deeply about their sin? Like, how do I get them to actually care deeply about living holy lives for Jesus? And this is what Luther writes, this incredible letter, and this is his closing paragraph, and this is where we'll close. He says, friend, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. It suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Notice this, no sin can separate us from him, even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day. Gotta love Luther. He says everything real strong. Notice this. Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Church, every time we deny our sin, self-justify, try to work our way back to God, try to just focus on the feelings of it, try to just put it off as personality quirks, every time we deny our sin, we are saying the lamb only paid a small price. But he didn't. He did not pay a meager price with a meager sacrifice. He prayed, paid an abundant, everlasting price as a sacrifice for sins. And so we get to be a gospel church, a church not prone to try to clean ourselves up, put ourselves all together, show up to group with our best smile on, our best foot forward, but to show up with all of our brokenness because our sin is great, but our Savior is greater. And that's who we're aiming to be. People that can say with the fourth century Christians, I believe 
in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died, he has risen again, so we can be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we need you, and it is hard for us to believe this line. It is hard for us to believe the forgiveness of sins. It's really easy for us to, to say it, even easy for us to want to believe it. It's hard for us to actually believe it, to actually live as if it's true, to actually live as if when we wake up in the morning before we even step foot into any amount of our day that we do it through faith in Christ as loved and forgiven children. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep sense of your mercy, a deep sense of your grace, a deep sense of your forgiveness that you offer to us in Christ Jesus what we cannot get ourselves. Maybe for you, you disbelieve the mercy of God is great enough for you. You've got the running list in your head. Here's all the reasons why. Forgiveness doesn't apply. It doesn't reach far enough. It's, it's not enough for me. Maybe for you, you've believed the gospel. You've trusted in Christ, but that demon of legalism, self-righteousness, self-justification, sin denial just keeps rearing its ugly head. Or maybe for you, sin is not bitter right now. Something you're willing to compromise with, mess around with, shrug your shoulders at, and the Lord's inviting you to repentance. To agree with him that it is what he calls it. So just want to give a minute. Band's going to come back up. I just want to give a minute for silence. It's been a lot of words. So sit in the moment for a second. Come Holy Spirit. Maybe for you this is that great is thy faithfulness verse 2 moment where you had no desire for the Lord and then without warning or desire or deserving. Spirit moved, and now you find your pleasure in him. And you surrender to that. Turn from your sin, repent, trust in him. Today is the day of salvation, the scriptures tell us. Amen.